Guys, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru, the optics authority. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com. If you have any interest in buying optics or have any glassing questions, whether it be tripods, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, range finders, anything to do with glassing, give Cody a call 702-847-8747. That's extension 2 or you can email him at optics at gohunt.com. You can also send him a text or call him on his cell phone at 602-399-3699. Guys, right now at GoHunt.com Insider, you can take advantage of the free trial. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott. You're going to be able to take advantage of a free trial of the Insider. GoHunt is always adding more value for their Insider members. They've now added real 3D maps as a part of Insider for no additional cost. What an incredible value. Very soon, they're going to have their mobile app up as well. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott and sign up for a free trial. If you're already an Insider member, it's automatically part of your Insider membership. And you can just go to the Maps tab up at the top once you sign in as an Insider. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. To find out more, you can go to KUIU.com, Kuyu.com. They're a direct-to-consumer company. They sell everything off of the Kuyu.com website. I also do a lot of question and answer on my Instagram where I'm answering questions about guys wanting to know about gear about Kuyu, so tune into my Instagram. I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Phonescope.com. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. And I want to thank AllElk.com, home of the Bugle Mule. Use the JSO10 to save 10% on all orders. The Bugle Mule attaches to your bugle, and it's a great little carrier that holds three elk calls right there on your bugle tube. And it's I can't wait to use it this season. Again, thanks to all the sponsors of my podcast. Guys, welcome to the podcast. I've got my friend Steve Chapel of Chapel Hunting Productions, Chapel Guide Service. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. I'm really chomping at the bit to start elk season. It's getting really close, so I'm really excited this time of year. You know, I've kind of been um, wetting my whistle, if you will, with the Elk Camp TV uh, shows, I believe, on the Sportsman's Channel. Tell me about how it's going. Yeah, Jay, um, it's the third season. Hard to believe that we're already into season three. Um, been airing since late June. I think we're up to about episode nine right now. So if guys have Sportsman Channel, they can catch it on Mondays at uh, 1.30 Eastern Time or 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, yeah, just 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 love doing it. Uh, the editing's a little bit of a grind and a little bit of a love-hate relationship, but um, I'm, I'm getting into, getting into the groove on that and, uh, loving it. And I'm looking forward to going out and filming for season four. Hard to believe. Yeah. You know, Steve, part of the magic of, of Elk Camp TV for me and, and then all of your DVDs and uh, extreme bulls videos that you used to do is that not only do you 
you know, basically produce from a on the ground production during the hunt, you know, trying to manage how the hunt's going and, and being filmed and what have you, but being able to edit that yourself, even though it, it I know how much of a grind and time consuming it is, uh, you're able as the editor as well to pull out some of the emotion and, and draw out some of the things within the hunt, building suspense and stuff since you were there where I feel like a lot of times in a lot of other shows, the editors weren't on the ground. They don't know how it was going. And so it's, it's missing a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about being able to kind of, in essence, be a one man band with the production of the show? Yeah, Jay, that definitely is an advantage. I always, I have a saying that uh, every cameraman should have to edit <laughs> Yeah, because that makes them a much better cameraman because they know what you need as an editor but but then uh, you know that does help me since i do edit the show to be able to relate to my cameraman exactly what i need when we're out there um just to get all types of different shots and we're running two cameras now in the field on the hunts um which you know you get a lot of extra footage um it's always better to have more than than not enough for sure um, it, it really seems overwhelming every time I start a new episode. It's kind of unbelievable. You know, you're starting from scratch with a whole bunch of raw footage. And I just kind of have that writer's block for a little while. And I think, how am I going to get it from, from here to the finish line, if you know what I mean? Right. Um, I've done it a lot now, but you still kind of have that kind of helpless feeling at the beginning. And then you just dive in and and go to work on it and uh you know spin it out and it, it it ends up turning out well usually i just finished up the last ep- episode for season three and got it turned into the network so i'm super excited about that now i can kind of turn the page and shift my energy to uh get into the field and doing some elk hunting yeah for sure we're sitting here on the 22nd of august and you know september is imminent it's eight days away and and our, you know, you and I's favorite time, favorite month of the year is, is right around the corner. Um, talk a little bit about uh, Unit 9, uh, what you're seeing on the ground as far as antler growth, size of bulls, uh, range conditions, etc. It's very similar to last year, Jay. The, the bulls grew really good antlers again because of the winter and spring moisture. But then we've really been lacking moisture since then. We had a little bit of monsoonal activity, um, but it just didn't really hit heavy in Unit 9. So we're really dry. Um, So, you know, the water sources are pretty limited right now. I'm really hoping for some rains here. The forecast is not looking real great right now. Um, And and it'd also be nice for some green up, some feed on the ground. But I tell you, it's still exciting uh, because of the size of the bulls. You know, I've been in the unit several times this summer, um, been running some trail cameras, and the crop of bulls is very, very good. I mean, so good that a, a couple of the, uh, you know, year-long tags, uh, auction raffle tags, uh, bulls were killed in that unit, and they were giant. Um, so anybody with a Unit 9 tag, or an Arizona tag for that matter, is really in for a treat with, the, you know, as far as size of antlers. Uh, remains a little bit to be seen how they're going to rut. Uh, that's why I'm really hoping for some rain. Not you know, bull, the big bulls are hard hard antlered right now, 
So they're done growing, obviously, but I would just like to see some healthy elk for, for the fall so we get some good rutting and activity and, and some good calling action like we like to do. Yeah, you know, um, there's a, I've been watching the weather. Um, it's just been nothing to watch, but uh, I see there's two hurricanes coming in the Gulf, and I'm just wondering if uh, somehow we can get some of that flow uh, if we get the moisture in, if, 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 if the jet stream will pick it up and potentially move some moisture uh, into the southwest, that would be phenomenal. Steve, you mentioned great antler growth across the state, and you and your guys, um, you know, kind of spread out all over. You talk about Unit 9, but you've got guys all over Arizona, and it seems like the general consensus, I'm curious what your guys are saying as well, all over the state is great antlers but super dry. Um, are there any units in your mind that stand out as far as maybe not being, you know, as dry as others? You know, it would be kind of the typical white mountain units like unit one, lots of natural water there, uh, you know, unit 27, um, you know, they're, they're more drought tolerant for sure than the central and Northwest part of the state. Uh, you know, and then next would be 3C, although, you know, 3C is not as drought tolerant as one for sure. Um, but yeah, by and large over there in the northeast part of the state, it, it, it seems to be better as far as feed and, and the water scenario right now. And across the board with your guides, uh, if anybody's out there listening, uh, have archery tags or early rifle or late, whatever you've got. Uh, or do you have any openings at all, or do you want people to call you? What's what's the status with that? Yes, absolutely, Jay. Um, you know, I'm going to be out and about some, so if they get my, you know, kind of extended absence greeting, feel free to leave me a message and let me know what tag you've got. But, uh, you know, at this point, we're wide open um, for hunts, and I, I think it's really due to the, you know, COVID situation people just being real hesitant about, you know, what's going to happen next with it. Um, it. It's really been a unique situation this year, one I hope we don't ever have to repeat again. Um, but, yeah, at this point, I, I would welcome uh, phone calls and, and would love to talk with people about uh, any hunts that they would like to book with us, absolutely. Steve, it seems to me with the craziness going on that about November 4th, uh, this situation's probably going to get resolved, I would think, and the probably are not going to hear a whole lot more about it after that. I, I really hope so, Jay. <laughs> you're not, I, I hope you're not taking I the bait, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I hope things go the right way with this election, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, Steve, we've got a slew of questions here um, from Instagram followers. I put it out there to ask uh, Steve Chapel. Chapel Guide Service questions, Elk Camp TV questions. So let's pile through some of these. And then I I have some as we go along that I might interject and um, try and draw a little bit more out of you. So let's just dive in here. Okay, sounds great. Um, what are some of the best things you can do as a helper on an archery bull hunt? Man, I would say the most valuable thing you can be on most archery hunts would be a caller. And so someone who is, you know, pretty proficient on the calls and can call well is going to be super valuable to a buddy on an archery hunt. You know, aside from that, um, if, if the unit's glassable or the area you're hunting is glassable, you know, being a glasser, 
uh, and being able to, you know, spot up some bulls and, and know what you're looking at and, uh, you know, give give your buddy some, some good intel on some bulls that you're glassing up. So, you know, I would tell a helper, you know, if you're a good caller, you know, bring your calls and be ready for that. If not, um, the best help that you could be would be, you know, glassing and taking inventory of bulls. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And Poppy Scott, she she second that during your answer there. She was fired up that you said that. Um, <laughs> a couple things that I'd like to point out too, Steve, to kind of further what you're saying is, and I see it a lot, and in Arizona, because tags are so hard to get, you know, everyone wants to help. And, you know, the worst type of helper is, quite honestly, the helper that's selfish and the helper that just wants to go to the best spots, the helper that doesn't really want to help. They just want to hear, you know, the most action, the most activity. The yeah. best kind of helper is the guy that says, hey, I'm willing to go off, send, you know, send me off if you just want to check a spot. And when that helper goes, that helper stays, you know, you know, Steve, you know, there's people that have been helping you for years that there's some that, you know, you kind of have to watch. And then there's some that you can just give them a, a dot on a map and you know that they're going to cover it. They're going to stay there till dark. They're going to give it full effort. They're not going to push the elk. They're not going to get in there and, you know, move. Right. They're just going to see what's going on. So I would give the advice as a helper. If, if you're being sent somewhere, you're being sent there for a reason. If nothing's going on. Uh, maybe that's what you need to report is nothing's going on, but that doesn't mean you leave your post early. Yeah. Um, you know, you can adapt and be like, it's totally dead here. I need to bounce over. I need to, you know, be valuable. But a lot of times when I'm sending someone somewhere, maybe I'm sending just to see what's shaking over there and okay, it's yeah. quiet. Okay. But when they come back and say, well, I left there an hour before dark. Well, you didn't even stay till prime time. They could have fired up. So, I mean, from that perspective, be, be, bring value. Um, yeah, and then be also committed. be the guy that's, you know, grabbing trash in camp and, you know, taking it to, to town and dumping it, you know, saying, Hey, do we need water? Do we need fuel? What do we need? And, and being, yeah, a, being a value, don't be the guy that's sitting there eating all the bags of potato chips and eating all the food. And, you know, yeah. you know, if you hey, get I'm back hungry. to, yeah, <laughs> I'm hungry. What, when's dinner ready? You know, when if you get back to camp early, you know, organize, clean up stuff, get, you know, get stuff ready. Um, and you know, just, just go above and beyond the best helpers, uh, that I've had over the years are guys that literally, they just, you know, they just go, go, go. And they're, they're always doing something to add value to the hunt. They're not like, Hey, I don't want to go over there anymore because I, you know, it's just dead. Can you send us somewhere better? It's like, no, I'm sending you to that point. Cause I know there's a big bull there. Go find them. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then don't, don't go to an area and over call it, you know, blow yeah. it out with calls and call, try to call a bunch of elk in and yeah. just throw a barrage of calls out there because you're doing nothing but damage. Because then if the hunter goes there the next day and those elk have been called at and pushed and come in and smelled human scent or, or seen that a call wasn't what it was supposed to be, then you've made the hunt even harder. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the other thing is, you know, w when you talk about being a caller, uh, I, I think it's huge help if, you know, if your buddy has a tag and you can call, especially if you're, if you make decent sounds and you have the ability to let your, you know, it, maybe if you're not so good that you can call bulls right to your feet, like Steve can, but if you can keep the elk bugling, keep the elk, you know, engaged, 
Yeah. Uh, that's always a huge help too. And be able to fade back and get, you know, elk responding and let your buddy slip in there and, and, you know, take a look and try and see what kind of elk they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, enough calling is not your forte, but, you know, just be honest with yourself and your buddy. And um, like you said, Jay, go, go check out areas. I mean, I've had guys that are phenomenal that come back, you know, they'll, they'll pull out a map and they'll show you in detail where the elk were at and, you know, where they were headed and what the wind was doing. They just have super detailed information. And I'm, I'm kind of a detailed info guy. I want road numbers. I want tank names. I want mileage, you know, all of that stuff, coordinates. You know what I mean? That's a valuable scouter right there. For sure. hundred percent. Okay. Next question is Steve's elk program for Arizona non-residents only. Yes. Um, I, I would assume they're talking about zero hunt fees there. Um, you know, basically I had to set it up that way because of the 90, 10 tag split in Arizona, you know, the 90% resident, they get at least 90% of the tags, the residents get up to 10% of the tags. And to be honest, Jay, I just can't come up with an equitable way to make it make sense for me and, and the residents. That's the bottom line. If I'm going to offer the program to someone, I want to cover their hunt 100%. And I don't want to, you know, base it on how many points they have, or, you know, if they're putting in for these units, I'm only going to put up this much money toward it. Do you know what I'm saying? I want to have it pretty black and white and cut and cut and dried that way. And for now, I just haven't been able to come up with an equ- equitable way to do it. So it's it's for non-residents at this point. And Steve, uh, for those that are listening that don't really know about uh, zero hunt fees, uh, give give the 30,000-foot uh, um, explanation of it. Yes. So under this program, a member would pay $349 a year. The best thing about the membership is it covers your guided hunt if you draw a tag. So, yes, if you draw the very first year, which I've had several members do, your hunt is covered by that membership. And then, of course, it also covers their yearly hunt choice and application consultation. I help them navigate through the application process very efficiently. I help them pick hunts individually that fit their individual goals and expectations for a hunt. So I'm not having all the members apply for the same hunts by any means. Um, it does not pay for application tag fees. I get asked that quite often. Um, you know, those are costs that are associated with an elk hunt for anyone. So, um, again, the biggest thing is that the three forty nine dollars a year uh, covers the cost of the guided hunt. And they're not locked into the membership. So if they draw early on, they don't have to stay in and continue paying the membership fee. It's totally up to them. Good stuff. I know you've had a lot of uh, people draw and and successful. I mean, you can get a, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollar elk hunt for you know a couple of years of applying at three hundred and forty nine bucks. You know, you're in it for seven hundred and fifty bucks, and it's a, it's a great value. And I know you've had a lot of success with that. Yeah. Um, yes. Matter of fact, my muzzleloader hunter from 2019, first year member, so he paid three forty nine and. Uh, came and killed a great bull with me, uh, his episodes on Elk Camp TV, and uh, he was just ecstatic about the whole thing, and so was I. Yeah. Next question here. Read read lots of different strategies on cow calling. Depending on the situation, any general rules? Uh, 
I would say, you know, in general, for me, anytime I cow call, I kind of like to start off, you know, more subtle, more sweet, uh, you know, more, more soft with my calling and build if necessary. So I don't go out there and just right off the bat, hit the woods and hammer it with real aggressive calling. Um, I feel like getting in tight with bulls, you know, and being, you know, say 75 to 120 yards from them has been, you know, my, my, my success has come from that over the years. And so uh, I say, whether you're blowing a mouth diaphragm or an open read call, you know, being subtle and sweet on it. And, and as far as sequencing, I don't overdo that either. You know, I'm going to typically blow one to three calls in a sequence and let that be it. You know, I'm not going to go out there and just blah, 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 hammer, hammer it and try to sound like a herd right off the bat. Um, it, it, it just seems to me like if the woods is fairly quiet and you just hammer it that way, it just kind of comes across unnatural. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and then I'll build as needed. You know, I, I'll build all the way up to that estrus scream sound, but basically that's if I'm getting nothing out of anything else. That's kind of my last resort. And wouldn't you say building up that estrus scream, you know, certainly the 25th of August, you're not going to probably be doing that right off no. the bat, but right. maybe September 25th, you might light into that pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, anytime, say, from the 18th, and and after is when I'm going to bring that call in into the into the mix, <laughs> and I'm still super hesitant about it. But it's just amazing how well it works. But again, not a call that I recommend just just going out and trying on the elk until you've really in your mind kind of mastered it and perfected it, you know, at home and in your truck, and and then give it a shot out in the woods. Yeah. Next question: First archery bull hunt in unit. Well, let's see. First archery bull hunt in unit for first time. Been doing lots of scoutings. Been doing lots of scouting. Excuse me. Tips for what not to do. So, well, I would I would say the first thing is with these elk, you always have to hunt with the wind right. So my most important part of gear, you know, aside from my calls and maybe more important is, is my wind checker. I'm always going to, going to hunt the wind, right. Um, you know, so figure out what the wind is doing, um, in the mornings and evenings in the area you want to hunt and don't let those elk get your wind. It's the first thing that I would say. Um, gosh, cause I, I just, it's something about me. I just hate blowing elk up. Um, even though I can be hunting in a unit that's 30 square miles. And if I blow elk, I can go hunt a different group. There's just something in me, Jay, that hates blowing them up. Um, I'm good at it, by the way. You're good at it? Blowing them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I've hunted with you. You're really, you're really particular and good at it. Um, oh, gosh, what else, what not to do? You know, um, something I would, I would say too, Steve, is like if it's a unit for the first time, I feel like driving at night, you know, after dinner and driving for a couple hours and just stopping and listening, not getting out and calling, but just rolling down yeah. the window. Don't even get out of the vehicle, especially if you're in Arizona or maybe New Mexico where there's a lot of forest yeah. service roads. You know, some of these Colorado hunts and stuff, it's it's different. But, you know, if, if this guy's certainly got an Arizona tag, you can do a lot of work after dinner for a couple hours 
by just driving, pulling off the side of the road, being very quiet, just roll the windows down, shut the truck off, not clanking around and just immediately listen. And, yeah. you know, trying to mark on your map or, you know, whether you're using the, you know, Onyx map or, you know, whatever you're using, mark, okay, yeah. three bulls, six bulls, no bulls, zero bulls, two bulls, seven bulls. Yep. And just covering country in the unit and trying to find those pockets of elk where they're gathering and bugling. Um, and a lot of times they'll be quiet and they're not going to bugle a lot during the daylight. And then all of a sudden they let their guard down at night and you can find good areas where there's, you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 bulls all balled up and, you know, do that night after night. And you're going to end up finding where the elk want to be. And then once you know, where those elk want to be that sh surely helps you on those uh you know evening hunts because you know okay it's you know an hour before light and it's quiet but i know that in two and a half hours there's going to be you know six bulls right here so then yeah. you try and backtrack okay where are they coming from um absolutely any, anything else you can think of on first time bull hunter and first time in the unit i, I would say too to most people have have a call or calls that they're that they're good at and then some that they're not so strong at i would say you know let's say that if let's say that you struggle with chuckling or you struggle with using a mouth diaphragm i would say don't blow those calls that you feel aren't your strong suit focus on what you're good at you know if you're if you're good at blowing an open read call focus on that um, it, it's amazing to me. I would say, Jay, easily 80% of the elk I've called in over the years have been with an open read call. Um, I, I know it takes some practice to master an open read call, but I think someone can get up to speed fairly quickly on one. You know, if they listen to elk actually calling and they listen to people who are good at it and kind of pattern their calling after that, um, you know, so, so, so focus on your wheelhouse and, you know, if you bugle to locate, don't think that you have to chuckle. Chuckling is not super important. I feel like it can be, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're solid at it, but if it's not a call that you're strong at, you know, just keep it in the tackle box and work on it when you're home and don't, don't use it on the elk. Yeah. And one other thing that came to my mind when you were talking, Steve, is, you know, a lot of these Southwest, uh, you know, United States, uh, states that offer elk hunts, you know, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, a lot of it is a lot of the elk are around water. And especially this year when it's so dry, a couple things that yeah. I would say is if, you know, if you're planning to hunt around a certain uh, dirt tank or, uh, you know, water of some sort, and you're driving in your vehicle back way off and walk in and walk in subtly as if there are elk at that tank. Absolutely. So many times I've seen people, people either a drive right up and they're like, Oh, we're going to dump the blind off. They pull up and there's elk in the, in the water tank already. Yeah. Uh, or two, they pull up, you know, 150 yards away and think, Oh, I can get out. And those elk are not stupid. And, you know, park, four or five or 600 yards back or more and, and slide in, you know, and don't just walk the road in because those elk, when, if they're already at the tank, they're going to be sitting there in the tank, looking in that direction. 
you yeah. know, ease up. And when you get just close enough where you could maybe see, just pull your binos up and kind of slide in there. I mean, I always, on lots of these different animals, I like to always say, pretend that these things are going to shoot back at you. If you, if you, <laughs> if you approach coos deer and you approach elk and you approach sheep, like, Hey, if they see me or they know I'm there, they're going to start shooting. I, th- I think yeah. you would be a lot more successful. And that's what I try and do because I mean, I've made the mistake of just blundering right up on something and, you know, a whole herd of elk and a great big six point bull standing in the tank. And if you would have just slid up, you might, might've been able to get a shot. Yeah. Because they get harder to hunt and kill every time they get spooked, they get less vocal and they get more nocturnal, which none of us like to hunt elk like that. Yeah. Here's a question. Uh, what technique would you recommend for a New Mexico bull archery December hunt? I immediately go, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck. Right? You lost me at December and lost me at archery and lost me at New Mexico. Yeah. Um, I would really say the only go-to tactic would be, you know, spot and stock and hope for good conditions for, for stocking them. Um, yeah, and, and if you can have a buddy, a friend around to, to help with the glassing. And, you know, I, I'm not sure about radios in New Mexico, if that's legal or not. I know in Arizona it is legal. Um, you know, so that could be a help to them if it's legal. Um, but I would say that's probably going to be a, a tough spot and stock hunt and very difficult because usually by that time, you know, you have real cold temperatures. And so stocking is, is very noisy. Yeah. Um, With that as well, Steve, um, you know, thinking of December, I mean, I've seen December timeframes where water is no good just because there's, you know, intermittent snow and rain and what have you. But, you know, I've also seen super dry December. So, I mean, just watch it. If if it's super dry, you might be best just sitting a blind and running some trail cameras and, you know, setting up and just waiting and letting the elk come to you. The yeah. other thing is if it, if it flips the opposite and it's super cold and it's snowy, a lot of times, and Steve, you can relate to this hunting at Red Mesa a lot in, in late seasons, um, when it's really cold, a lot of times those elk have to be on their feet and they have to be feeding. And a lot of times when it's yeah. cold, it will force them to feed. So that's where, like Steve was saying, having a glasser and being able to, if, if communication, and I don't know if New Mexico, what the rule is, but be able to have some sort of communication with a spotter and have someone up on a high point and glassing for you and, you know, at least getting you in the position where you can maybe see the elk from a couple hundred yards and then trying to stalk and, you know, get into position. That That's kind of the tactic that I would, that yeah. I would use. Yeah, I'm like you though, Jay. I would pray for dry, mild weather to where you could sit water because that's a good tactic. And with that said, if you do have those conditions, I definitely would not stalk and pursue elk in an area where you plan to sit the water because if you bump those elk, then again, they're less likely to come in during shooting light to a water source if they've been spooked. Good stuff. If you're going to spot and stock, hunt somewhere else, and then and then come sit your water source and leave it undisturbed. Good calling tactics when the elk are completely silent in non-glassable territory. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a lot like Unit Nine can be um, at times. You know, really, uh, I have to say that when I'm an elk, when I'm elk hunting, patience isn't my biggest virtue. Um, you know, I do a lot of moving, 
um, a lot of lo location calling, whether whether it's with cow calling or bugling. I'm looking for that one elk that wants to play. That's what I'm looking for. You know, if I absolutely can't find that elk, um, you know, there's there's a strategy called, uh, you know, you know, silent calling. Basically, the elk are silent, but you're calling. So in that situation, you know, you would want to position yourself in an area where there's a lot of elk sign. You know, um, you feel like there's elk nearby, uh, you know, set up where you believe the wind is right. And, uh, you know, what I would do is, is, is do some cow calling, say every three to five minutes blow like one to three cow calls and, and be ready with an arrow knocked. Um, because a lot of times these bulls can come in silent and, um, they're on you before you even know it. And they haven't made a sound. Um, again, I have to say that I haven't used that technique a lot just because I like to move and find bulls that are going to be vocal um, and I by no means bat a thousand when I'm out there elk hunting. So quiet elk are frustrating to me as well. So I want your listeners to know that, um, that I do like hunting them when they're more, more vocal and, uh, usually, uh, wait and, and pray for that scenario where I can have some calling success. Um, yeah. And, and then things work better. Yeah, for sure. Steven. And two, I think, um, you know, if you're the hunter and your buddy's a really good caller in that situation where Steve's talking about blind calling or silent calling, if it's me, I'm going to have my caller definitely upwind of my shooting position so that I'm going to be watching the downwind side at all times because a lot of times in those silent uh, calling situations, those elk are going to come in quiet, but they're always going to come in, most always on the downwind side. Absolutely. So, by putting the caller upwind of you or at a 45, that allows you to be back more in that, what, say, Chris Road call the doorway where those elk are going to come to an area where they yeah. hear the calling and they're looking, but you're already in shooting range because your caller buddy is 50 or 60 or 70 yards more upwind from you. And at an angle so that, you know, position yourself in those blind situations because they're very rarely are they just going to come charging in, uh, you know, on the upwind side. Yeah, especially if they're not vocal. If they're super charged up and ruddy, they might just come straight at the call. But you're right. When they come in quiet, they're going to take every advantage they can to circle downwind. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's a question. I think it's a little bit more for me. It says, are you going to do an elk growth update for AZ units? Um, yes, I am. Uh, through the whole first part of September, I'm going to be reaching out to guys all over the Southwest, getting kind of a early pre-rut update, getting a, you know, on the ground conditions, uh, unit updates, uh, antler growth updates. Uh, so stay tuned for those. And I'm going to try and continue through September to get periodic calls from guides and friends that I know that are out hunting and just try and get boots on the ground, uh, information. Nice. Okay. Um, what is your calling strategy pre rut last two weeks of August? Yeah. Again, I'm that guy that, you know, is a more conservative caller. I, I lean toward, you know, being more conservative with my calling. So, you know, I would definitely start out, as I said earlier, with just nice, soft cow calling. That's how I would approach it. Because I feel like those bulls, you know, they've rubbed that velvet off. They're feeling the rut coming on. 
you know, there definitely there's an interest level there. Um, and, and sometimes they'll come in eagerly to cow calling at that time. You know, um, if they don't, that's a time when I might, you know, try a little bugling again, not super aggressive bugling, maybe just, you know, like just high, clean, pretty bugle. Um, if you're a good chuckler, that's when chuckling, a little chuckling can come in, not aggressive chuckling, but just kind of that laughy chuckle that those bulls make kind of that unaggressive chuckle. Um, you know, bulls are kind of territorial that time of year they're establishing, you know, dominance and territory. Uh, so they can come into bull sounds, but I'm always going to start things off with cow calling over the years. I've been amazed at, you know, the success I've had in late August, uh, with bulls, you know, because they haven't been called out a bunch yet, or maybe they haven't been called out at all. And, uh, you know, if they hear some nice cow calling, that's, that's what they're about. And that's what they're looking to do is, uh, join up with cows and get things started. So, uh, you know, they can come in eagerly, sometimes bugling and sometimes not. Yeah. And also Steve, curious your thoughts, early season, you know, a lot of these, uh, OTC Colorado hunts, you know, this year it doesn't start till September 2nd, but I believe Nevada, I think already yeah. is rolling. I think Utah starts early, but um like steve says doing some subtle cow calling kind of starting out you know just just seeing what's shaking but um i've also had quite a bit of success steve just kind of doing some little you know kind of intermittent bugling um yeah. and doing some raking and some rubbing almost like a bull's just kind of getting going he's just yeah. a lot of times those bulls just want to see who's over there raking and what's going on. They're not yeah. coming in aggressive. They're not coming in to fight. They're just kind of who's over there. What's, you know, what do you got going over here? And maybe right. within a little bit of raking. And, and for those that are listening, raking is when you take and you're trying to simulate an elk rubbing their antlers on brush. A lot of times aspen and, and juniper and, um, you know, pinion pine some of the, some of the smaller oak brush and stuff and exactly. early season late august a lot of times they're rubbing their antlers like crazy because they've just rubbed the velvet off and they're kind yep. of getting their neck muscles and getting everything ready and that's when you see a ton of rubs that last week of august first week of september is when i would say most of the rubs are made and so if you can kind of simulate just you know raking by taking a, you know, a tree branch and raking your, you know, raking the branch against a tree and try and simulate that antler sound. Um, I think that could be huge. Another tactic is get a couple of like, you know, kind of smaller 5.45, maybe small six point sheds Absolutely. and tick them together. Do some tickling, not clashing and fighting, but more just bulls, you see them that early season where they're just kind of just messing around and squealing and, and doing that. That's been super successful um, for me. Yeah, I agree. Those kind of sounds are way better than making elk sounds if, if you're not real proficient, especially chuckling. I know I mentioned chuckling earlier, but I feel like if a guy doesn't feel super confident in chuckling and knowing how to do it unaggressively, that you're way better off using those non-vocal sounds like you're talking about with the raking and the antler tickling. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Question here, best tips for quickly field judging a bull coming in fast to the calls? Yeah, um, you know, the biggest thing for me 
when I'm looking at a bull to determine whether he's a trophy bull, you know, a shooter or not, is, is looking for, for curve or belly in those points versus straight. If I see points that look straight, um, those are short points. So the first thing a guy wants to look for is he wants to look for fronts, you know, that come out over the bull's nose and face and then curl up, then glance at the thirds. You know, the thirds are always a bonus if they've got good thirds. You know, a bull can still score pretty well even with average thirds. Um, and then the next thing I glance for is, is, a, is a good whale tail there in the back on the fifth and the main beam. Um, if they've got good curvy points, you know, average to strong thirds and a good whale tail, for most guys that's going to be a, a pretty strong bull. Um, you know, if they've got 50-inch beams roughly, which is kind of average on big bulls, um, you know, a bull with curvy fronts, good thirds, and a big whale tail, you're going to be looking at a bull that's in the 340, 350 range right there. So, Yeah, and Steve, I'd like to point out too, I think you, you make a good point of curvy points, but I think it's also important – as they're coming in to be looking for any missing points, looking for broken yeah. points, looking for, yeah. you know, always only a five by six. And, you know, yeah, if he was, a, if he, if he had a G uh, five, he would be a, you know, 18 or 19 inches bigger, but he's missing a whole, you know, he's only a five by six. So for me, I'm looking yeah. at exactly that. I'm looking, I'm counting points. Is he a six? Is he a seven? You know, does he have extras? What are his point lengths? I think you make a great point about belly and curve. I think I just put in a, a video on my Instagram and talking about um, field judging elk and kind of giving some examples with an elk antler in my hand, showing that belly and that curve. When you see lots of curvature in those actual points, and even the main beams, if the beams look pretty straight, then they're probably going to be yeah. short. If they, you know, they they go and they bell out or they they curve out and bell back in and then you know maybe wave back out or if he's got a big whale tail i mean you know okay he's got a really good beams um but I, yeah. i'm trying to evaluate as quickly as i can what are my first impressions typically my first impression is not wrong um sometimes it's yeah. it's been wrong but yeah. most of the time i'm looking does he you know is he impressive right away and if I'm looking as he's coming in and uh, I notice a weakness, normally it's really puts me on a kind of a hold mode and kind of a stop mode of like, okay, this is not a shooter. Whereas if he's coming in and I'm like, okay, he's got everything. His fronts are long and curvy. He's sick. You know, he's, he's five points. So he's a six on each side. He's got extras, you know, then I'm like, okay, I'm more on go. But a lot of times, Steve, and you can weigh in on this, like, you know right away, oh, it's a thin bull. Oh, it's a it's short fronts, weak, weak one, two, threes. Or look at the stubby backs. He's only got four-inch fists. Those first impressions can speak a lot, usually. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Jay. If you have to make a bull into a trophy bull when your first impression is that he's not, he's not a shooter. That is if you're a trophy hunter and you're looking for a you know, quality bull. Um, you know, and you're right, it's real easy to overlook a bull, you know, missing like a G2 or a, or a, or a fifth point or something like that in the heat of the moment. So like you say, make sure all those points are there, um, and everything is intact and really trust in your first impression. If it's a wow factor, I tell my hunters, if that bull doesn't wow you and blow you away, he's not one that you want to shoot. If you have to think about it. Yeah. Good point. Okay, how do you avoid hunting pressure for Arizona Unit 8 archery elk hunt? 
And I, Steve, I know you've guided in that unit and I've been in that unit as well. So how do you avoid yeah. pressure in unit eight? I would say the first thing, you know, when you're hunting would be to get away from, you know, major frontage roads and areas that people like to recreate in. And again, those are going to be centered around the more major frontage roads there, you know, that lead south of Williams. Um, because there's going to be not only hunters out there in the field, but there's going to be people camping and quadding and all of that four wheeling that don't even really realize that there's a hunt going on. Um, so you know, if it were me, I would probably want to focus in areas, you know, for, number one, further away from Williams, number two, away from the nice frontage roads. And, and, and then I would definitely want to look in the, it, it, you know, in the uh, pinion cedar country out there, out there in the West part of the unit and, uh, you know, get into some of that rougher country. Um, and, and I also know there's some rough country down there around Sycamore um, that, that a guy would want to look at. But I would just say, you know, if you if he has time prior to the season, a day or two before the hunt, maybe just drive around and see where all the activity and where the camps are at and just look to, you know, be away from that. Yeah, and something specific about Unit 8 is, I mean, and Steve, you've seen it firsthand. I mean, Unit 8, you know, has some really nice bulls in it, and it's, it's kind of a middle-tier unit from my perspective. Yeah. It doesn't make, say, the top five of – you know, best units, but it's still a pretty darn good unit. But one thing unit eight to be prepared for is unit eight can be very finicky bugling, very finicky yes. rutting. You can have one day where they're just on fire and, you know, just going like crazy. And then you could have two or three days where literally you don't hear a bugle during daylight and the yep. elk are right there. Um, it's just the way unit eight is. I think it's because of all of that camping pressure and, you know, extra activity. They never can really settle in and just really get going. Um, yeah. And I, I know people that hunt unit eight, they complain a lot about, you know, it being fairly finicky. So just kind of expect that as, as well as I think, you know, your tip, Steve, talking about getting away from Williams or getting away from those high traffic areas. I think anybody in any unit all across the Southwest could use that same bit of advice of, yeah. you know, get in those pockets where there's not the activity, get in those pockets where maybe it's harder to, you know, get into. And yeah. a lot of maybe times you'll find or... some stuff that are, you know, undisturbed. Yeah. Even if they have to walk in a little ways, you know, Definitely. park on a secondary road and hike in a ways that, that I always say when you get a mile or more away from your vehicle, you lose the majority of the pressure right there. This question I'm sure is directed at me. Um, why do you hate bow hunters with the, with, <laughs> with a uh, winky face? It's not that I hate bow hunters. I am a bow hunter myself. I'm not one of these crazed archers that's, you know, shooting every day and all that 365. I'll, I'll, you know, shoot my bow and stuff when I have a great tag, but, and it's not, maybe people have heard me, you know, talk negatively about bow hunters. Um, and I'm sorry if I've come across too negative, but it, to answer the question, I have nothing against bow hunters, but if, if I did put on my hat of what do I have against bow hunters, sometimes it's, um, the fact that, well, there's several things. I think a lot of times guys, you know, they shoot all summer and they, they, they're, you know, trying to be prepared, but 
you know, they don't know when to draw their bow. They don't know where to aim. You know, they, yeah. they, they tend to fall apart when things go. And I've been there. I've done all of these things. So I throw myself in this category. But Absolutely. there is also, you know, this thing of, well, I shot it with my bow. Well, this, this is, this is going to rub some people the wrong way. So in my opinion, sometimes archery hunters have this notion of, well, I shot a lesser trophy because I shot it with my bow. And so that makes it better. I, I kind of have a problem with that. Yes, it's harder to kill things with your bow, but yeah. I, I see people say, well, I shot a five point because I used my bow. Well, great. If that's what you want to do, that's great. But they almost use it as a crutch yeah. and you know, if I have a tag, I'm trying to shoot the biggest elk that I can. If I've got a slingshot, a muzzleloader, a rifle, <laughs> a whatever. Right. It's, yeah. Like, don't lower your standards because you're a bow hunter. But with that being said, you know, if you're if you're getting into archery and you're trying to harvest, you know, something, then take the opposite of approach of, I just want to get one, and I'm super happy. And then the next year you draw, just trying to get one, and you know, get a handful of them under your belt and then become trophy hunters. Because I've seen it too, where guys put in for Arizona for 18 or 20 years, they've never shot a bow. They finally draw a tag. So then they buy a bow and now all of a sudden they're the, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread to hunting. And they think that they know everything about it. And it's like, you've never drawn your bow on an elk. How, how do you even expect to come into camp wanting a 390 inch bull and you, you've never you've never even shot one yeah you're so. right it gets real when you draw on a bull yeah and i i would add to that with bow hunters to, to me the worst shot you can take is a quartering on shot and an elk is just so tough and resilient and if you take a quartering on shot usually your nightmare has just started so I would really encourage people to take, you know, broadside quartering away. If they take a frontal shot, it needs to be super close and it needs to be in the right spot. Most people are going to shoot too low on that frontal shot. Um, so I would tell people if they don't feel, you know, 100% confident in that to avoid that. Um, but nothing takes the place of a broadside shot and a double lung hit. You know, that's, that's where good things start right there. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, archery i think elk are the perfect animal to bow hunt i think they are an yeah. awesome animal to bow hunt it's a big target they eat really well they're you know they're it's not a teeny tight tiny target to to try and shoot um and it's a great animal it's a great hunt great interaction i think some of the this question also is because i'm bagging on archery coos deer hunters a lot that want to come to mexico and they want to bring their bow and i'm like you know, go with somebody else. This, you know, I, I want guys that can shoot a rifle at three to 500 yards. When we find a big giant buck, I don't want to screw around with a bow. So I guess I'm crawdadding a little I bit. There. I'm crawdadding a little there. bit, but it's like, um, you know, if you're going to become a bow hunter, great. Uh, be proficient with your bow, practice on drawing on animals. Uh, and like Steve said, shot selection, you know, you, you cannot take bad shots. You have to take high percentage shots and you have to be disciplined about that every year. And Steve, this is kind of the thing that nobody talks about, but in Arizona, I mean, I would say almost if there's a hundred tags in a unit, there's 50 bulls that get wounded. 
Yeah. Nobody I, I wants to talk about it, but the reality yeah. is a lot of that, a lot of those 50 are, are shots that should have never been taken. So if people right. can take a higher percentage shot and be disciplined with the shot they take, I think we can drop that number of 50 down to probably 15. Yeah, exactly. If guys wouldn't have that, just get one in a mentality and, you know, the bull don't fly, don't die if the arrow don't fly, you know, that's not a good mentality to have because, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, if you take a shot that you think is marginal, you're going to wound that bull and you're not going to find him. And, and then, you know, if you're an honest hunter and spend days diligently looking, those are days you could be hunting instead yeah. of looking for a wounded animal. Yeah. Um, you know, with my hunters, I, I, I talk about and I stress over and over good shot angles. But unfortunately, when I'm back calling, um, you know, everything can fly out the window when nerves kick in. And that's the one part of the hunt that I can't control. And uh, I kind of hate that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. All right. Next question is midday calling tactics when elk are bedded and or silent. So let, we've already kind of talked about the silent stuff, but let's talk about uh, midday calling uh, when elk are bedded, Steve. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest, Jay, I don't do it a lot in Arizona, you know, and that's where my experience is, is in Arizona. I don't hunt the bedding areas much in Arizona because the risk of blowing elk out, especially if they're not vocal is super high. Um, you know, the wind, if you don't have a consistent wind, I would say that's the first thing you need is a consistent non-swirling wind to do that. Um, you know, I know elk, especially herd bulls, once they get their cows bedded and get them settled in their stationary, they can be more, more vulnerable at that time than when they're up on their feet on the move. So there is something to be said for that. Um, you know, a bull, if he feels like he's got his cows bedded, and you blow a call, he feels like he can get up and, and go check it out, you know, whether you blow a bugle at him or, or maybe a cow call. Um, you know, so I do feel like that that strategy can be effective, even though, you know, I mainly hunt them during primetime mornings and evenings. Um, the, the biggest thing for me, again, to stress would be, you know, making sure that you've got a good consistent wind uh, before you try anything. And again, distance is going to be super important a bull you know whether they're whether you're hunting in prime time or in the bedding areas they're going to be way more likely to come to a call if you're say 75 to 100 yards away versus 200 yards away yeah steven i think there there's a there's a point where you've got a super premium tag and you're trying to kill a big giant bull and then there's a lot of tags across the southwest where you're just trying to kill any elk and mm -hmm. when you're just trying to kill any elk, and, and I can even see that being uh, something that you would do in, in Arizona, maybe someone it's their first hunt. I could see where hunting some of those bedding uh, grounds and bedding areas would be advantageous. I think it can be um, super effective. I think yeah. what Steve's talking about is if you've, you know, kind of targeted a couple of bulls and you, you know, got some really nice bulls and the last thing you want to do is blow them out and they run for three or four miles and then you've got to repattern them and, and check yep. them out. Whereas if you're exactly. just kind of hunting, say in Colorado and you're OTC and you're up in the mountains and you know, there's no one else around and it's like, I'm just trying to kill a bull. Then I could see how getting in tight to their bedding grounds and, you know, like Steve says, doing some calling and just being pretty patient. Cause a lot of times those bulls, if you're just kind of, 
out on the outskirts at 75 yards, just cow calling every once in a while. That bull gets up periodically to check his cows. And if you just kind of stay in there with the wind right, he's probably going to wander over almost in bow range just to see what's going on, see who you are. Yeah. Like you say, Jay, I would be way more likely to do it in uh, areas like Colorado where you've got more more high country and more cool, shady areas, uh, you know, where the temperatures are cooler and it's more likely that they're going to be, you know, a little active during the midday. And wouldn't you agree? I mean, a lot of situations, Idaho, um, Montana, uh, Colorado, where you've got kind of those OTC situations where, you know, most guys are just trying to kill a branch antler bull. Right. So they are okay if they get in there and they blow something out. They're just trying to get one bull to come to them. Um, I could see how that would be an effective tactic for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Will the bigger bulls usually be killed first week of archery or second? I believe he's talking about Arizona. Yeah. And are they usually called in? Man, I would say that is a lot dependent on conditions. Um, you know, my hunter last year in unit nine on the archery hunt got three shots at three different herd bulls on the first three mornings of the hunt. So if I were just to go by that, I would say definitely, you know, early in the hunt. Um, they, they were not very vocal, and I was just able, with a little bit of luck, to get a, you know, a bugle out of them and move in and happen to see that they had cows and, you know, get in super tight with them and blow that, you know, I talked about it last year with you, Jay, that, that lip ball or that uh, bull calling cows bugle, and they would come right over to that. But they were cowed up at that point, so they had cows. Um, gosh, I, I always say in general, I, I would rather hunt them when they're, you know, more aggressively vocal. Um, it kind of seems to me like the bigger bulls are cowed up right off the bat in Arizona with our season, you know, starting somewhere between the 10th and the 18th, depending on the year. Um, you know, I would say if you had to pick a week and hunt, I would pick the second week. Um, if you don't have to pick a week, I would start on opening day and hunt the whole thing if you could. Um, but if I was forced to pick a week, I would want to hunt more vocal elk in general and then hope that the weather conditions are good and that that you don't have high winds. That seems to be the hardest thing for, for me to deal with anyway, as a caller, when you just have those sustained 20 and 30 mile an hour winds that are blowing in the morning and just relentless all day long. Um, that's the toughest for me. Yeah, and I I think it's pretty hard to put your finger on whether the biggest bulls get shot early or late or, you know, the first week or second. I think it's all across the board. I think it depends on who draws the unit, you know, what guides are hunting. I mean, there's so many variables. I would not discount sitting water, and some big, big bulls have died, you know, sitting water. I think guys that are willing to be consistent sitting – um, you know, have killed some really, really big bulls and be patient and, and, you know, sit and, and it, it, the thing I would recommend though, in, in sitting water is it's very hard to be productive. If you're bouncing around, if you're bouncing from tank to tank to tank, trying to, you know, chase it's it's super hard to, you're always a day behind. Yeah. So, I mean, what you want to do is, um, pick one spot 
that you've got good intel on, you've got, you know, trail camera pictures, and you have to be consistent because you're all, if you're bouncing, you're always, you know, one morning behind, one evening behind, and it just seems you'll, you'll end up blowing the whole hunt, um, you know, just because you're not being consistent with your pattern. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And it does take a lot of determination and resiliency to, to sit water day in and day out. But yeah, especially on the afternoon evening hunts, they can be super slow in Arizona. So that is a good tactic. Okay. Raking tips recommended or rather just call. Um, I think raking can be phenomenal when you add in calling. Um, yeah. I think, well, let me back up and then I'll let you, I kind of jumped on this one, Steve. One of my favorite things to do, especially in unit nine, is I have been successful sneaking in with my hunter close to elk, like 50, 60, 70 yards, pretty dang close, and then get the hunter ready. And then I back off about 10 yards and I start raking and I don't make a sound other than raking. I don't know what it is about that, but those bulls, it seems like when there's someone raking in their territory... And, and then you don't answer them. They bugle at you and you just keep raking. They almost, yeah. it's so effective in unit nine. They almost always come over and see, which has them walking right by the hunter. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime you add a vocal element to it, you know, it can either add to it or it can, you know, make that bull nervous if he hasn't heard that bugle or that cow call or whatever it happens to be. And it better be spot on, especially if you're close to them. Yeah, I, I agree that non-vocal raking um, is the way to go, especially to start with if you're going to try raking. Yeah, and I think, calling. too, you know how when you're raking and a bull will bugle? If you just keep raking like you could care less about that bull, that's, to yeah. me, that's the deciding factor for me as far as, just keep raking like you don't even hear the bull bugle. You don't even care. And yeah. it just drives those bulls that you're trying to call. It drives them crazy. It, it, I've seen it where it just, they, they, I would say it's probably a 70% chance that they're going to come within shooting range of where you're raking. Yeah, I, I would say so too. Absolutely. Okay. Next question. Um, Gila, early September, what would be your daily hunt sequence? Glass early, then move and call. Well, ideally for glassing, I would want to have a buddy there doing the glassing because I would not want to spend prime time during the hunt glassing because, you know, if you glassed up a bull, Unless he was real close, by the time you got down to him, he's probably not going to be vocal anymore. Um, now, I would say if you're hunting alone and you have nothing to go on and you're really looking to, you know, hunt a trophy bull, yeah, maybe start out glassing. Um, but, but boy, I would not spend every morning during the first two hours of light glassing uh, because you're giving up that opportunity to call and have encounters with elk up close. Um you know, I would, I would probably be more inclined if I was going to glass to do it in the afternoon and late evening and, and, and try to call in the morning again, unless he's got nothing to go on and he's trying to locate something trophy to hunt. Yeah. And, and that, I was going to say the same thing, you know, if, 
if you're the type of guy that wants to find one great big bull and you're you want to kill a giant then i would say one of you know i'm a good glasser so one of my biggest yeah. things is i want to be glassing until i find a bull that i want to go after then yeah. once i find him then i'm going to make a plan and a strategy and a tactic to go after that bull but if you're a guy that just wants to have a great elk hunt and be in the action, I think, you know, you're hurting yourself by glassing in the morning. I think you want to be glassing. If I had to choose, I would be glassing in the evening and running and gunning in the morning because I think Absolutely. You're, you're calling and bugling is much better. Your chances are much better in the morning. They seem to bugle better at you know, the first two hours than the last two hours. Yeah. But what's so great about glassing in the evening or, or the, you know, the, the, the late afternoon is a lot of times you can get up high and you can start seeing those elk out in the trees, not even out in the open, but you can go, Oh, that's where they bed. Okay. That's, and you know, then you can kind of go, okay. And then they come out of the opening right there and you can take that glassing strategy the next evening and basically position yourself because you know exactly where they went into bed and where they like to come out and how they start feeding and okay they break through this you know small little opening first and they right. stay there till right at the last and then they kind of beeline out into the open and i've done that on lots of hunts where you've kind of figured them out the evening before and then you make a good plan for the next night yeah absolutely I'm like you, I would save my glassing for the afternoons and evenings and, and then run and gun in the morning if possible. Steve, we've got a question here. Unit nine, early rifle hunt. My odds are good, but I'd love to hear you two talk about your approaches. So it sounds like this guy's got an early rifle uh, unit nine tag, which is a coveted, probably oh. one of the best tags. Steve's drooling right now. Wipe your mouth, Steve. <laughs> Um, yeah, me, please. <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the best hunts in the state. One of the things that jumps out at me with unit nine, Steve, and I mean, you know, unit nine so, so well. Um, and I've hunted a bunch too, is you've got a whole mix of country, you know, you've got, you know, the yeah. stuff on the East side of say Tuzion and it's fairly thick, you know, timber all the way up to Grandview tower. And then you drop off Grandview tower down in the into the upper basin where you've got some thick stuff, but you also have some open areas where those elk like to be. And then, you know, you've got yeah. the west side out west of Tuzion, um, you know, all the way out there um, towards the cataract where as it gets more and more open, you know, it, it makes glassing, you know, easier and being able to spot elk and there's lots of good little knobs and places. And then you've got, you know, down south, you know, the dog knobs and, you know, some of that country out east where you can see a little bit um, for me, if I had that unit nine early rifle tag, I would spend the two weeks prior during the archery season, I would be up glassing. I would be glassing yeah. morning and night, and I would be trying to see, you know, where's the hunting pressure, who's moving what around. Um, I would even be, you know, just talking to hunters and, uh, you know, not at prime time. I would not, I'd be glassing, but you know, nine, 10, 11 o'clock, you know, see someone on the road, stop, say hi, tell them you have an early rifle tag. And, um, you, it's so funny how sometimes there's guys that are archery hunting and they're like, 
you know, they're so fed up because they've been chasing one big bull and they can't get it done that they're like, yeah, you got an early rifle tag. I'd hunt right here. Don't go in there now. But I'll, as soon as the season's over, I'll let you know exactly what he's doing. You yeah. can get some good intel from the archers, but definitely stay out of their way and don't don't get in there. And, you know, I, I've run into people in the woods before prime time and you're just... You know, all of a sudden you hear this other hunter calling, you go over and try and talk to them. They're like, well, I've got an early rifle tag. And it's like, hey, man, your hunt isn't yeah. for two weeks. You know, yeah. I'm not, not cool. telling you what to do, but man, be a little bit courteous if you were in, you know, this hunter's situation of stay out of there a little bit. Stop calling yeah. and, you know, stay away, stay out on the outskirts a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And being sensible about when you talk with people, that's very good advice. Yeah, and I would, I would say, you know, for him to keep in mind that he's got a rifle, so I would focus on areas that, you know, where that where you can use that rifle. Um, you know, hunting in the really thick, tight stuff, the more, you know, archery-type stuff, you know, even with a gun can be can be frustrating. So I, I if I had that tag, I would want to focus on areas that were more broken to open where, you know, I could reach out and, uh, first off, see the, see the elk, see the bulls, and uh and then let that rifle do its thing yeah uh steve too i think when you have those tags i think people put such high expectations on the hunt and so much pressure on themselves yeah it almost takes the fun out of it i would you know try and urge the, this listener or this uh instagram follower to just enjoy it enjoy all of it and you know not put so much pressure on yourself um, especially if you're kind of new to it, enjoy the whole experience and, and realize that you do have a phenomenal tag. But, um, yeah. you know, if you, if you put too much pressure on yourself, I've seen a lot of hunts ruined where guys just, they just can't hold up to the pressure of having the great tag. Yeah. And when you feel pressured up, you usually don't hunt well and make good decisions. It's amazing how that happens. But if you just take the pressure off and, and go out there, number one, to have fun, hunt hard, but have fun doing it. Usually good things are going to happen for you. You know, even there, though there are some nice special bulls in unit nine this year, you know, still 350 plus bulls are not around every tree by any means. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would say like you, Jay, don't set an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation and hang the whole success on a score uh, because most times you're going to be disappointed. Um, right. If you take the pressure off. Uh, you know, hunt hard, but have a good time doing it. Good things will usually turn out for you. And call Steve. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> call me if you got an early rifle tag yes, in nine. Okay. Absolutely. Um, do you apply for Arizona elk draw? And if so, what are your usual top choices? Yeah, I've, I've kind of been the guinea pig for this listener. I've drawn my... <laughs> second choice three different times and even though i've taken bulls and two of them were real nice bulls um i was kind of disappointed in the hunt quality by that i mean the bugling activity the, the lack of bugling um so i've really gotten to where um you know the first thing they need, you need to understand when they're applying for bull elk is it comes down to your first two choices on your application you're going to get one of those two um you know, and with the experience of those three hunts in my past, I've really gotten to where, Jay, if I'm going to draw a tag, I want it to be a quality hunt. 
otherwise I'd rather just guide someone who's got a great tag and experience that hunt with them in a great unit. So really for me, um, I've kind of narrowed it down. Uh, and this is just, just me and my opinion. So I don't want this to, you know, completely slant your listener into what they apply for. But for me, you know, it's units nine, uh, 23, 10 and three C are basically my considerations that I kind of have it on the table on a yearly basis, um, that I have to whittle it down to two choices. Um, you know, again, I, I want to have the opportunity to hunt 350 and better bulls. And the main thing for me is I want to have good calling interaction and uh, enjoy the fun of that. And so I'm going to want a unit that's got a lot of bugling activity. Those units that I just mentioned, other than 3C, are managed on an alternative management program. And you really do see a difference, uh, you know, not only in the bull-to-cow ratio and the age class of bulls, but in the bugling activity. Uh, And you can see that directly uh, reflected in the success rates as well. Um, You know, so those four units are going to be the ones that I look at. Yeah, and I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. I've got 17 points as an mm-hmm. Arizona resident and yeah. can pretty much now draw almost any tag out there. And, yeah. um, you know, because of my schedule and stuff at the odd six, I just chose to even just do a bonus point this year. I didn't even try. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm looking at nine, I'm looking at 10, I'm looking at 23 north, looking at 23 south. And those yeah. are probably the four um i've hunted 3c a lot uh but i just don't feel 3c is probably on par with those other four it's 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 right there behind it but um the years of you know killing you know 400 inch plus bulls they still do it every once in a while in 3c but it i think it used to be a better big bull unit And I think a lot of that has to do with the White Mountain Apache on the west side. You know, they shut down the hunts for a while. And so for a handful of years, there were some really big bulls just because there wasn't any pressure on the White Mountain and those bulls would come across. Uh, Steve, I noticed you don't mention Unit 1. That's usually thrown into that mix. You guided a year or two ago in uh, Unit 1 and just didn't feel like you had the age class there that, that, you know, that unit one is kind of known for. Yeah. It's a beautiful unit. It's the prettiest unit in the state, but that's how I felt about it. I just felt like the, the age class of the bulls in general was low in the unit. And it was just really hard to turn up, you know, even three twenty, three thirty plus bulls, let alone three fifty plus. I mean, I know there's some around, but it's a giant unit. Uh, and when you don't have that age class overall, um, you know, you're mostly looking at, you know, 280 to 310 bulls and having to sort through a lot of that um, to have the very occasional encounter with a 330 plus bull. So I kind of took that off my radar as, be, as being a top trophy pr- producing unit. Um, you know, definitely a unit if a guy wants to see a lot of elk, um, you know, a beautiful, pristine unit and, and have a lot of fun. Um, but for a strict trophy hunter, I think there's better options like we just talked about. Got a question here. Third rifle season, Colorado, cow calls or bugles to locate bulls? Gosh, I would say optics <laughs> mostly. Yeah. Um, and if you were going to use calls, I would say cow calls. Um, I always say calls are definitely important no matter the season, not necessarily to call bulls in. But if you need to stop a bull for a shot, 
or you know if you need a follow-up shot it's amazing how calling will keep them right there and you know confused as to what's going on um, so you always want to have your calls with you that way i would not really expect success with calling especially if you're hunting um, you know over the counter public land um, the elk are typically going to be deep and dark and not vocal uh, that time of year. So it's either going to come down to glassing or just going in and, and rooting them out and doing a lot of hiking and hard, hard hunting. Steve, t- we've talked about calls uh, for those people out there. Uh, I'm sure most know that Steve actually makes his own calls and designs his own calls. And I believe Rocky Mountain Game Calls, um, actually they changed the name. I'll let you um, tell us about it. But uh You've got the new Heartbreaker call. It's awesome. External read. You've, so you've got the Trophy Wife and the Heartbreaker. They're two of my favorite externals as well as a whole um, mouth call selection. Talk a little bit about your calls and your thoughts on these uh, different calls. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jay. So, yeah, I work with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. I've been working with them for 10 years now. It's, it's been awesome to collaborate with them on these calls. And uh, like you just said, we just came out with this heartbreaker call uh, for 2020. I carried a prototype in the field with me last fall, had incredible success with it. It's an external rated call. Um, It does have its own unique uh, tone. Um, But I I was telling you earlier, uh, day to day between the trophy wife and the the heartbreaker, it just kind of depends. Day to day, one of them will be my sweetie pie. Uh, so I would encourage your listeners to, uh, you know, check those external reads out and see which one, you know, they like the sound of. Um, and then we've got three mouth reads. Um, you know, we've got the Elk Camp, the Tines Up, and the Royal Point. Um, th- they're all built on the uh, on what's called the GTP frame. Uh, they got the pallet plate incorporated into them, um, which I think was the biggest advancement to come along in, in elk calling. Uh, I know you and I, back in the mid nineties when we first met, remember you were the one that gave me the very first pallet plate call that I ever had. And uh, it was just unbelievable to me how much of an advancement that was uh, with mouth reads. I think the stabilization within the top of your mouth, that that's where that pallet plate, you know, has kind of paved the way for people to become better mouth callers. I think people have been able to keep that call stable. and, And I just think it's a groundbreaking you know, thing. And most good elk calls now, mouth calls have it. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So my orange elk camp read is, is kind of my go-to cow calling read. And then my blue Royal point and and red tines up are are kind of more of my bugling reads that I pound on. Um, You know, I think they make great uh, grunt and chuckling sounds as well. If someone, you know, practices on them and, and gets to that point where they can make those sounds. Um, the other element that I should mention is is a bugle tube or a grunt tube. A um, couple of years ago, we came out with the Rogue grunt tube. Actually, I think it was 2019 was the first year we came out with it. Um, I like that we incorporated a lip ring on the mouthpiece. It gives it a little bit bigger opening to where you can do those nice lip ball or display bugles. Um, the call is very compact and lightweight, but it has real three-dimensional sound is what's amazing about it. It uh, just creates real nice back pressure. And what that does when you're bugling, if you just blow through a straight tube, um, your listeners would probably notice that you quickly lose your breath. You just blow and your breath just goes away from you. 
but a tube that has back pressure allows you to make those real three-dimensional sounds because there's something, you know, backing it. And it just sounds like you're blowing it into a 50-gallon drum, and it, it gives it just more authenticity. Uh, sounds way more elk-like, um, whether you're bugling, chuckling, grunting. Um, all those sounds just sound way more realistic with a, with a good tube. And I always tell people on my podcast, as well as on my Instagram, um, if you want to learn how to call and become a better caller, listen to everything that Steve Chappell does with all of his calls. Um, whether, where's the best place there, Steve, on the YouTube channel that I know there's some phenomenal videos and, and as as well as the Elk Camp TV, but what's the best place you tell people to, well, you probably don't, you're so humble, but where would you tell me to direct people to kind of go and listen to your calling? You know what, Jay, I'm glad you asked. In addition to what you just said, YouTube, and of course, if they can watch the show, there's usually a tip of the week, not on every episode, but most of them. I would say Instagram. If they would go to um, my Instagram account, my daughter does the posting and she does a really good job with it. Love having her do that. But we do a Make the Call Monday. So every Monday we post up, um, you know, me blowing a call. And, you know, I'll be honest, usually it's bugling because it's more entertaining. Um, but I would say that's a good source. And it's just usually a 10 to 20 second call. Um, you know, I don't necessarily explain the call, but I think a lot of learning to call is hearing it and hearing how it should sound and then fashioning your sound after that. I think that's the most valuable thing rather than hear somebody explain how to do it in minute detail. Um, I've always been more of a learner by listening. So uh, yeah. yeah, go to our Instagram page at Elk Camp TV. Um, they could even scroll down to, to every single Monday if they haven't been following us and listen to those calls. Great stuff. Uh, got a question. <laughs> I know they all suck, but what's the best OTC elk hunt in Arizona? Oh man, I, I'll be honest. That's a question. I am not the person to ask. I have not hunted that OTC hunt. Um, I see some people who do. I follow some people on Instagram. Um, I, I know the Presmix in, in particular, um, killed a couple of nice velvet bulls on, on OTC, uh, hunts, but, uh, yeah, that's just a question. I don't know, Jay, if you have any, no, it's, it's so go. out of my wheelhouse. I just, yeah. I don't pay any attention to, yeah. uh, you know, I pay attention to the top quality units. And other than that, I, I don't, I don't even have a place to even start. I don't, yeah. it's not even something that's on my radar. Exactly. Cause that's someone that's going to have to have super, super, um, local knowledge a lot of time uh, a lot of time on their hands exactly um, usually very hot conditions um, and probably a lot of time with maybe not even seeing elk so it can be a very frustrating scenario as well don't expect to have you know the kind of experience that you would on a draw tag yeah uh our nl our swarovski nl 12 power finally the all-around chest piece and tripod glass looking to pair with btx 65 um i'll let the, you answer that <laughs> the answer is yes um i have the 12 power swarovski nls and they're phenomenal um, i can actually hand hold the 12 powers where 
for years I had the 1250 ELs and my, my hands historically always shake, have a little bit of shake and I could just never yeah. really handhold the 1250s comfortably. But I can tell you these 12 by 42 NLs with the super um, wide field of view have made it where I can handhold. I am going to be using them uh, here at the Yacht 6 this coming month of September and really put them through the paces of an actual hunting season. So, I, you know, after that, I'll be able to really tell you. But all indication, yes, they're they're fantastic. Absolutely, Swarovski's hit a home run. And I think for someone that's looking for an all-around chest bino, I would normally tell them the 10-power EL uh, was the go-to. But now by being able to have two more power and have actually three more feet of field of view than the 10s, uh, these 12s are pretty sweet for sure, so you need right. to check them out. Uh, we got two more questions here. Any tips for mid-September elk calling? Oh wow! If you know if they're if they're vocal or they're not vocal, again, I'm going to go back to saying that I always typically start out with cow calling, um, and I'm going to build from there. Uh, and I'm going to and every scenario and bull is going to be different. You know, Jay, in the last four or five years. I've become more of a bugler, but that's just because I've been encountering herd bulls. Uh, and I use bugling basically in that scenario only for the most part is when I'm dealing with a herd bull. Otherwise, I'm purely cow calling because I, I feel like with satellite bulls, that's what they want to hear. And if you if you focus on and perfect your cow calling, you're going to be wildly successful out there. So, again, I'm, I'm going to if I'm not encountering bugling elk during the day, like we talked about earlier, I'm going to go out at night after dinner in the dark and quietly troll around on frontage roads and listen for bugling and pockets of bugling and make notes of those and come back and hunt those in the morning. Um, but again, my first line of, of offense is going to be using my cow calling and uh, only bugling uh, with herd bulls when I get in tight with them and their cows. Cause I feel like if you just go out with that bugling approach, um, and just throw that out at every bull you encounter. You're going to scare more elk away than you're going to call in by cow calling. All right, let's talk about this a little bit because you, you, every year you get me intrigued. Um, the last few years with this bugling at herd bulls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you found a guy that used to, I mean, literally hardly ever carry a bugle. You have right. changed to carrying a bugle and using it in certain situations can you describe the situation where you've had the most success yeah it's it it's definitely when i'm able to get in tight with an aggressive herd bull and by tight i mean usually 75 yards is seems like to be the magic distance um and and what i try to do jay and if you've seen um, my episodes of my show this year I don't want to back off at that point and leave my hunter up and, and create more distance between me and the bull, because then that's going to give that bull the opportunity to either push his cows away from me or the cows might get up and walk away from me. So I want to stay in that zone where I feel like I put him in that fight or flight mode. But, but the biggest thing I think that I do to be effective is, is, is how you blow that call. You know, when I blow that, lip ball or that bull calling cows bugle i blow it with an attitude like i mean business like i'm i say i'm making a statement i'm not asking a question whatsoever um i'm going in there and i'm 
to me, I'm putting two things into that call. First of all, I want it to sound like I'm a player and I'm flirting with his cows and making those cows go, wow, that sounds impressive. <laughs> that sounds like a big stud over there. So I'm, I'm bringing that level of jealousy up in, in him by, you know, putting that flirtation in there. But then I'm also, you know, at the same time, punching him right in the nose by making it a statement and being really aggressive with it and not asking a question right out of the gate. Um, you know, so I don't want to go in there and be kind of passive and see how he reacts to it. I want to make him immediately make a decision about it. And, and I've just found when you blow it, you know, with a lot of volume with the right tone and like you mean business, that's when you get a reaction out of it. Would you say that you've totally changed your reaction to the bugle from say 10 years ago when we were running around calling elk and messing around? Yeah, I would say absolutely, Jay. It's been kind of a 180 degree switch. And really it's because back then I didn't feel like I had that bugle in my repertoire. I didn't feel like it was in my tackle box to even pull out, like I wasn't confident in making that sound or really knowing what sound I wanted to make. Um, but now, you know, I'm typically, I start the call off with, with a, maybe a half a second of high pitch, just a half a second of high pitch, and then I dump it down into that lip ball sound. And, and I feel like, you know, I do it in a, in a pretty heavy way. It sounds pretty heavy and aggressive. And then I ended at the end with a, you know, there's, there's a stop to it, but also it kind of breaks back into that high pitch and dumps off again at the end. And uh, it just seems to be the sound that just trips their trigger when you're in tight with them. Steve, do you think over the next week or two, you could do a, a Monday calling tip um, and, and demonstrate that? Or if you already have, maybe text me the date of the Instagram post. Cause I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, absolutely. And, and yeah. so do you, so when you engage in that, you're not like, I wonder what's going to happen. You've done it enough successfully that you know, what's going to happen. Yeah, Jay, I, I would say honestly, eight to nine times out of 10, when that scenario unfolds like that, and I blow that. And I'll tell you this, sometimes I feel like when I blow the call, I think to myself, yes, I hit it right. I nailed it, you know, and, and uh, at times when I feel like I didn't nail it like I want to, that's when I don't get the reaction. So you really have to nail the, the tone that you're. You're, like Joel used to say when he first started talking about the bull calling cows, I yeah. had him on the podcast and I was kind of, you know, pretty skeptical, but he was just adamant about it. But you would say that you are, you're in a hundred percent agreement with what he was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And giving credit where credit is due. I think that's the mark of someone who, uh, you know, um, is, is able to learn from others and take what others have um, and, and, and recognize something that, that, that might potentially work. And, and, and I think Joel was spot on. And when I heard him talking about that, I set out to master that sound. And, you know, I've, I've blown it a lot practicing it, you know, in my, in my study and in my house. Try to do it when my wife's not around. Uh, definitely freak my pets out doing it. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like when you get to where you can blow it and it, it's got a lot of volume, um, a lot of that heavy lip ball sound to it, 
and just a lot of emotion behind it is, is what you want. And, and yeah, if your listeners go onto my Instagram page and just scroll down through the Mondays, they'll see quite a few clips of me doing that um, already, but okay. I'll continue to post some of those up. Okay, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I look forward to seeing more uh, situations where it's worked for you. All right, last question here. First season rifle in Colorado, glassing or calling? Yeah, I would say a lot of that depends on the area that you're hunting and if they're bugling or not. You know, if it is glassable and they're not super vocal, I would definitely spend time behind the glass. Um, but if they are vocal, like, you know, you know, the area I hunt in uh, Colorado Jay on the private land with my dad, they're super vocal. You know, so we're able to just dive right in and go after them. So I would say, you know, guy's going to have to kind of assess the situation um, definitely bring the optics, you know, make sure you, you can mount them on a tripod, be ready to glass. Um, but if you have vocal elk, I, I would say get right in there with them and, and get, in the, you know, get in the mix with them. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a question mark whether they're bugling or not. I think the season starts around the 10th. So, you know, in, in most areas, I think there could be bugling at that time. Yeah. And it seems like Colorado, um, you know, at the odd six, it's on private land. It, it definitely can still be cranked up. And I've seen them there yeah. where you hunt, you know, shoot, they're sometimes bugling all the way into third season. Yeah. Yeah. In the first <laughs> season, they're bugling their guts out. So I hope that's the scenario that your listener encounters and, uh, you know, he can use his calls and, and, uh, stocking and get right in there and get a nice bull. Yeah, for sure. Steve, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. I want to give you a second, uh, any final thoughts, concluding thoughts, uh, any, any final thing you want to say to me or the listeners. And um, it's always great having you on. I look forward to seeing the success of you and uh, your hunters and your guides there at Chapel Guide Service and love watching Elk Camp TV. So I um, appreciate having you on. Yeah, thanks, Jay, for having me on. It's always a pleasure and always a lot of fun to be here with you. And I thank you uh, to, to your listeners. Um, always fun to, to, to be a part of their elk hunting. And I want to wish all of them the best of luck. If they're anything like me, and I'm sure you are on the same boat, Jay, this year especially. I'm especially looking forward to getting out there and spending some quality time in the woods and just enjoying that. This has really been a crazy year. Um, I kind of saw a little... Uh, I think it was on Instagram where the, the back to the future movie, I'm sure a lot of guys remember that Michael J. Fox and the scientists were yeah. there at the DeLorean and Michael J. Fox was sitting in the driver's seat and the scientist was telling him, whatever you do, don't push 2020. <laughs> so this is a year that I don't think many of us want to repeat. So again, this is going to be an extra special, you know, month or two of elk hunting for me. And, uh, you know, I would just wish everyone the same and, and just to get out there and enjoy it immensely. And, uh, you know, just don't focus too much on what's going on in the world right now in politics. I know it's hard not to. Uh, and again, you know, I hope everything goes goes well and goes right with the election and uh, we can move on to, to, to better things. Um, but uh, again, Jay, great, great to be on with you and, and uh, just, just a blessing today. Right on, buddy. Sounds good. God bless. Take care. Tell, uh, tell the girls hello, and uh, I'll be chatting at you down the road here. That sounds good, Jay. Tell Gene hello. Thanks again. All right. Bye.